The Internet of Things is becoming a reality. Factories are being outfitted with sensors, temperature monitors, and other data-gathering devices. In agriculture, farms are becoming more efficient thanks to soil monitoring devices and automated pesticide regulation. And in our homes, refrigerators and alarm clocks and mirrors and Nest thermostats are becoming smart. Today, Steve Busby joins the show to talk about the big picture of IoT. How does it actually work? From data ingestion to processing to feedback, how do our systems ingest the data that we are producing and respond to feedback that is calculated? Steve works at Microsoft in the Azure IoT division, and he discusses the problems that companies are having and the solutions that are available today from our IoT infrastructure. He also discusses where we are going in the future and you know, how long it's going to take till we get to that big IoT dream that we've been talking about for so long. Steve Busby is an Internet of Things technology specialist with Microsoft. Steve, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Appreciate it. How do you define the Internet of Things? So, so generally, I mean, you know, lots of people have lots of different ways to define it. Typically, we really just define it as um, the the with really four aspects: you know, the the things themselves, uh, the connectivity of the things themselves, uh, a, a place and a way to store the vast amounts of data related to uh, events that the things send, uh, and then the analytics, and, and really in, in increasing value uh, of that. Um, from left to right. So the, the things are obviously value valuable because you have to have them. The connectivity is valuable because you have to get the data. But from a business value, it's typically much more valuable in the uh, the storage of all of that data and, more importantly, analytics and action. So I don't really have a, a concise, you know, one-sentence definition. Mm. The discussion about the Internet of Things has been going on for so long. It seems like since the early 2000s, and every year, it seems like we're around the corner from finally realizing the dream of Internet of Things. What has been stopping us from making IoT a reality? So I think the, the primary things that have been stopping us, or, or, or kind of another way to put it, the things that are current, that are enabling us now that we didn't have in the past, were the, the things, it's really, I think it's a, 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 a convergence of a number of things. One is that the things themselves are getting both cheaper and more powerful, so the ability to have a you know a small but just very powerful computer uh, that's that's you know either single digits or low double digits in cost. Uh, I think connectivity, while it's not completely ubiquitous, certainly it's more pervasive uh, and it's cheaper uh, than it has been been in the past. And there and there are more new options as well for connectivity beyond just the the traditional Wi-Fi or, or telco providers with things like uh, Sigfox, for example. Um, for uh, and LoRaWAN and other and other technologies like that. So, you know, the things themselves are getting cheaper, and more powerful. Connectivity is getting more pervasive. Uh, really, I think one of the trends that has definitely helped is with uh, things like cloud computing, the ability to store vast amounts of data from these things, and to be able to do so in a, in a cost-effective manner. I think is one of the the kind of key. Uh, trends that that's helping IoT uh, realize part of its promise, and then finally, really the last thing that I think is, is really one of the biggest keys is the ability to do analytics on that data. 
So I think with the the emergence of, of big data type technologies like Hadoop, uh, as well as um, machine learning specifically and you know artificial intelligence is really helping people take advantage of that data. So I, I really think it's kind of a convergence of those those four trends that's that has has held us back in the past that's really enabling us to move forward now. What are the things that people are actually connecting these days? Do we do you have any interesting real world examples that you've seen? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think some of them are are pretty interesting. You know, the, I think a lot of the the things you'd expect people to be connecting are traditional things like um, uh, machines on a shop floor um, or, you know, smart meters, uh, you know, pieces of oil equipment, piece of equipment on, you know, oil rigs and, and drilling um, installations and those kinds of things. But the interesting thing and the really fascinating thing about IoT and particularly, you know, what we've seen from, from my role is the um, – the wide variety of things that people want to connect. So, for example, I've recently had a customer. I recently had a discussion with a customer about what I call the Internet of Dumpsters. So, people, you know, this customer wants to wants to uh, connect their dumpsters. They're a waste management type company, and they want to uh, internet enable their dumpsters so that they can tell, you know, when they're full or not, when they need to be emptied, and they can kind of optimize their routes and optimize things around that. You know, we have, uh, you know, one customer that makes wooden pallets. So these are uh, pretty, very inexpensive little pallets, but they have to track a ton of them, and they tend to lose track of them from time to time. You know, another example is um, we've got. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've seen or heard of the case study. We've got the the connected cow case study. So we've actually got uh, farmers who are trying to predict things like the best time to breed uh, cows based on. Um, being able to tell when they're uh, most when, when it would be most successful to help breed that cow, so it's it's kind of interesting the the vast array of things that people want to connect. But but I would say most of our opportunities are are generally around manufacturing, healthcare uh, is really a big one, and kind of you know oil and gas and some some of the traditional things you'd expect people to to connect. But there there are some really interesting scenarios out there as well. Hmm. So there are many devices that a company might want to connect, like a refrigerator, a dumpster, like you said, a car, an assembly line. Most of the devices that are on these assembly lines or in these companies, these dumpsters, they are what we would call dumb. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think most dumpsters do not have a chip or a sensor built into it. So... Can we make these dumb devices smart, or do we need completely new devices? Um, it, we, we definitely definitely don't don't do don't need new devices. I mean, we um, we focus very much on helping uh, customers enable existing devices. In fact, the, the the marketing tagline for for Microsoft's Internet of Things solution is we call it the Internet of Your Things. Um, the idea is, you know, helping get uh, these existing things connected. So, you know, some of them, as you say, are, are dumb. Um, so you have to uh, really figure out a way to add a sensor to them and then potentially have them connect through uh, what we call a gateway. So in, in some cases, these things are you know, really old, like elevators, for example, that, that only speak you know, serial. We're working with a company that, that makes elevators, and, and they, uh, their elevators speak over a 100-baud serial cable. Uh, you know, other devices are not necessarily dumb, but they, they speak protocols that aren't Internet-enabled, like 
uh, Bluetooth Low Energy, for example, or Zigbee or Z-Wave or something like that. And, and you know, in those cases, really, we talk about uh, sending that, that information through a gateway. So we, we might hook up a, a device that, that reads data off the serial port and, and does a protocol translation of that up to some, some protocol that we can send to the cloud. So what kinds of processors do we need to put on these devices that, you know, it's like a dumpster, I've got a dumb dumpster, what kind of thing do I need to put on the, on, on the dumpster to make it a smart thing? So typically, um, for, for most uh, things like that, generally we're looking for, we're looking for you know, some relatively low-powered device um, that that at least you know has internet capability. So the the classic example that we use in most of our POCs and early implementations is something like a Raspberry Pi uh, or a, a Dragon Board or Minnow Board Max or something like that um, that has a you know a Broadcom processor or an Intel or a, you know an Intel system on a chip type processor. Um, generally, those are are sufficient for most. Implementations usually a lot of it depends on you know requirements. Does it have to be battery powered? Can it be plugged in? Those kinds of things. But there's a, there's a pretty broad array of of actual you know processors themselves. Uh, it generally just comes down to to what what type of sensors are needed, and you know what what the power requirements are for the device. Hmm. Who's the company that is making most of? I mean, so you mentioned Raspberry Pi, obviously for uh, maybe for prototyping or something, but like, if there's some, you know, is there a are there large and like I've heard of Intel, I think making processors that are uh, specifically for the IoT. Are there is there any big companies that are making huge plays on getting their process, getting their specialized IoT processors out there? Uh, I would probably say there's a bunch of them, and you just about every, just about every processor manufacturer is is making an IoT flavor of their processor. I mean, Broadcom is certainly a very, very popular uh, choice. Uh, there's even custom processors, uh, you know, a company that we work with called iBot. Um, they make a, a, a pretty optimized IoT processor as well. Uh, Intel is really the, uh, you know, the, the big one, as you mentioned. Uh, and, and in addition to just pure processors, uh, a lot of these companies are starting to make um, gateways as well, so not just not just a processor, but a gateway that can speak, you know, indus- either industrial protocols or even consumer protocols on one side, and you know, you know, IoT, internet, cloud protocols on the other. What is a gateway? A, a gateway. So a, a gateway. Yeah. So gateways generally are what we consider uh, a device that sits in between the, the, the dumb device, uh, one or more dumb devices and the internet, and can, can do protocol translation, potentially edge processing as well. So, you know, you might have, for, for example, you know, we work with a company that, that makes uh, batteries and they have, uh, you know, they have a customer, they have customers who have forklifts, for example, just to give you an example, running around their facility. And, you know, whenever they charge their forklifts, uh, this company gathers data about the battery uh, from all of these different forklifts, and they funnel that through a gateway up to the cloud. Um, so this gateway, you know, the, these, the, the batteries in the charging stations, you know, they speak a protocol that can't talk to the Internet. So the gateway takes that data, uh, does a protocol translation, and sends that to the cloud. And that can work both ways as well. We can, we can send 
um, commands back down to these devices via the gateway and uh, and have that gateway do their protocol translation in the opposite directions. Really, typically gateways are used for you know two or three things. One is protocol translation. So maybe I've got a, a, a one or more devices internally that that can't talk to the internet. So it it, it does that protocol translation out to uh, one of the one of the protocols um, that that we speak. For example, for Azure specifically, it's either AMQP, MQTT, or HTTP. Um, the gateway may also do edge processing, so it might do s some local filtering. So, for example, if I've got um, if I've got a whole bunch of data coming off a, a, a dumb device, but I only want to send a subset of that, maybe it's just alerts and alarms up to the cloud. I can filter out a lot of the noise and send just what I want up to the cloud. Or maybe maybe I want to do aggregation, local aggregation. So maybe I've got a, a device that sends data once a second because that's what it's done for the 30 years it's been in existence to send data once a second over the serial port. But I only want to aggregate that data and send the aggregate up once a minute to the cloud or once every five minutes. So, so the gateway can do that, that processing as well. And then finally, you know, a lot of people look at gateways as a security boundary as well. So I've got, uh, I want to essentially NAT my devices behind this gateway so that my devices themselves aren't connected to the cloud directly. Yeah, so let's talk there a little are, bit about that. Yeah, okay. let's talk a little bit about that security because um, you know there are these kinds of devices that we don't maybe want connected to the internet because security is such a high priority. Like if I have a heart rate monitor or a nuclear power plant, uh, I I'm not sure I want to be connected to the internet. So you're you're saying that a gateway can help can help regulate the the traffic and and prevent some of the malicious potential situations. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the gateway, you know, A, it can be used to kind of hide the fact that there are devices uh, on the private side of it. It certainly reduces the, uh, the, the footprint, um, uh, the hackable footprint, certainly, uh, from the, these individual devices, many of which are, were never designed to be connected to the Internet. So they're not secure in any way. Uh, form or fashion, uh, and even the ones that have been hardened, you know, it's 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 just defense. It's just a defense in depth uh, mechanism uh, for being uh, behind the gateway. And certainly, the, the gateway gives you kind of one place to focus your efforts in terms of hardening um, the solution as well. Hmm. So, as we start to talk about using this Internet of Things, we should talk about the information that's actually coming off of these things, or how it's being co coming off of them and then being translated by the gateway, perhaps. So the information that is coming off of these things, it might be in the form of events or perhaps time series data. What is the typical schema for something that is coming off of an, of an Internet of Things device? What is the schema for an event or a piece of time series data? So the... You know, generally, um, so the schema in terms of what information is included the, in the event can just can vary, very is very wildly varying. You know, it it all really all depends on uh, exactly what it is you're you're trying to monitor. I mean, certainly temperature, temperature and vibration are popular in some uh, in some areas around things like motors, um, temperature, vibration, even noise. You tell when a, a, a motor is going bad because of noise. Uh, you know, certainly for health devices, it might be heart rate and and uh, you know skin temperature and things like that. You know, generally the the actual content of the messages varies pretty wildly uh, by 
by industry and, and by application. You know, in terms of protocols, uh, you know, in terms of formatting of the, 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 the messages, the schema of the messages in terms of formatting, it's, you often see things like JSON or CSV. Um, uh, you see Avro from time to time. But, you know, I would say JSON is by far the most popular, um, uh, particularly for any new, not necessarily a, uh, a new device, but for any new implementations of IoT, particularly one that, that does do some type of protocol translation, JSON's uh, been by far the most popular uh, format of messages, but the the schema itself uh, can vary pretty pretty wildly. Mm-hmm. And I th- and there there's some particularly in the consumer area, there's some efforts at standard standardization, uh, such as the the All Scene Alliance and All Join implementation and those kinds of things. And and there are different there are different standardization efforts even on the uh, the industrial side for things like OPC and those kinds of things. But there's still the the, the 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 interesting thing about IoT standards is there's so many of them. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So okay, so let's say I have all these events coming off of my Internet of Things platform. It's either coming directly off of the devices and into the internet, or it's hitting the gateway. The gateway is forwarding them to the internet. How is data getting ingested by my cloud provider? So, I mean, you work for Microsoft. They, you, know, you have the Azure uh, IoT platform. So the data gets ingested, and then you can do all these different things with it. Let's first talk about the ingestion layer. How is that data coming in? Mm-hmm. So for Azure specifically, uh, it's generally coming in through a technology we call IoT Hub. Uh, Azure IoT Hub, it's a it's a PaaS service, you know, platform as a service service. So there's no virtual machines to manage or any of that. You just, you know, d- turn the thing on uh, and, and tell it kind of what scale level you're looking for uh, and 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 want to pay and want to pay for, or really in terms of what number of messages per day you expect to get. Uh, and then we have uh, it's the service that ingests that data, very uh, high scale, high performance ingestion engine. And then, you know, to get the data to IoT Hub from the device side, we have a number of uh, device SDKs um, for various operating systems and languages and, and things like that um, that kind of help get data to to IoT Hub from an ingestion perspective. And and in addition to ingestion, the, the IoT Hub also allows you to do command and control. So it's a, a two-way uh, communication with the device so that you can send commands back down to the device as well in a, in a reliable manner. Talk more about the IoT Hub. What is that? We had a show about event hubs recently. Mm-hmm. I don't know if IoT Hub is closely related to that, but maybe you could just explain what an IoT Hub is. Yeah, it is. And, and you know, for the, it is very related to event hubs. In fact, event hub, uh, some people call event hubs kind of the precursor to IoT Hub. That's, that's not really accurate. They, they're, they're, because that implies Event Hub is going away, which it is not. It is, is still very much a, a part of our ingestion story at Microsoft. Um, so the, the, the challenge with Event Hub, specifically for IoT scenarios, was there's a, there was a few limitations of, of, IoT, of Event Hub that we needed to address. Uh, one was uh, Event Hub is limited uh, to 5,000. A given Event Hub is limited to 5,000 concurrent connections. Uh, so obviously that's not, that's not going to cut it for... Uh, large device count uh, implementations. The other thing, the other limitation was it was uh, single security, meaning that you did not do per device authentication. So it was, you kind of had that one authentication key that that 
said, you said you, you know, you're either in or out uh, in terms of talking to the hub. And then the, the third thing was, is it wasn't bidirectional. So there was really no way to talk back to the device. You, it was for ingestion only. Uh, and we still use it uh, a lot for maybe cloud to cloud or even d- data center to cloud type ingestion scenarios. But the, uh, what we did to address that was we, we created IoT Hub. So IoT Hub is meant to address some of those, those limitations uh, of Event Hub, uh, and it's really a, a very related technology. Um, so, but, but it does address those things with you know, per-device authentication. With, uh, we've, we've tested it up to 10 million concurrent connect, currently, sorry, concurrently connected devices uh, per hub. Um, and we've also, uh, as I mentioned earlier, enabled the bidirectional communication through the hub. So it's, it's a very related but kind of much more IoT-appropriate technology. Hmm. Yeah, so in the Event Hubs episode, we talked about how IoT Hub was somewhat similar to Kafka in that it's a distributed pub-sub replicated buffer of messages, and it makes a lot of sense for the ingestion layer because you have all these events coming in. They get buffered on the Event Hub or the IoT Hub and can gradually be ingested by your your system. They can be pulled into your system and in the meantime, they they remain on the queue that is your your message buffer, either your event hub or your IoT hub. Um, so after that ingestion layer, where does my data go next? So typically, you know, there, there are a number there are a number of places for your data where your data can go. Uh, we have. Um, we have uh, code that we've released, uh, a, a, an object called Event Processor Host that you can use to do custom. You can basically write custom code and kind of pro- process that that data directly in code if you want to do some time of custom processing, uh, and may, you know maybe dump it to storage or or do something really custom with it. By far, the most common place for that data to go is uh, a technology called Stream Analytics, which is our uh, streaming, our real time streaming engine, in in Azure, so it's it's meant for doing a lot of that the the analytics um, after the data hits the hub, and you want to do what we call it the hot path analytics, where you know you need to do something near real time with the data. Stream analytics is by far the most popular next step. Yeah, we also had a show about that. So give me an overview for how I would use stream analytics. What would I do with that with my incoming data? Yeah, so. Um, so stream analytics, uh, it sounds like you've already, you've already had a session on it, just the 30-second version of it. It's basically a SQL, a SQL-based uh, streaming analytics tool. So you write uh, really never-ending SQL queries that run across the data as it streams by and kicks out rows and, and row sets you know, as um, interesting things happen or as you, you match, you meet criteria. So examples of that might be uh, I might want to do some type of filtering or, or alerting. So... Uh, I can do things with, you know, where clauses in, in the SQL, like, you know, where temperature is greater than 100 or where, you know, vibration uh, is over a certain threshold. So that's, you know, one interesting thing that you can do is, is alerting type um, uh, type uh, implementations where you're looking for anomalies, where, you know, some value has, has bypassed some threshold. You know, another uh, common thing that, that you might do with it is aggregations. So, so maybe you're sending data uh, once a minute, 
from the devices themselves, but and but for downstream purposes, you really only want you know the, the five minute average or the one hour average. So you can do things like you can do in SQL: mins, max, sums, averages, counts, those kinds of things. So tip, things that you would typically do in a group by in SQL, you can do as part of stream analytics queries. And then the other thing that you can do is look for um, really uh, kind of temporal based. Um, uh, you know, use cases as well. So you, may, you know, maybe I want to look at the the average temperature over the last five minutes and compare that to the same five minute period yesterday, uh, or I want to look for um, the absence of messages. So maybe I'm, I'm looking for cases where a device hasn't sent a message in the last hour um, as a way to kind of alert myself that that device has gone dark on me, and then I need mm-hmm. to investigate. Um, or you can even do things like I got a uh, I just got an ending event, you know, a, a door closed event for a device. Uh, I want to go. I want to look back and see when that door when I got the door open event for that device, so that I can calculate how long the door was open. Just as a, just as an example, mm. um, for those those kinds that kind of analytics. So not only can you do kind of right now type filtering and aggregation. But Stream Analytics gives you the ability to look back temporally um, at the data as it was in the past. So you, you, you're essentially doing a, you're taking the stream as it is at the moment, and you're doing a, a join, a SQL join to the stream as it was uh, an hour ago. So with regard to like the temperature example, if I'm getting all these events coming into my cloud from it's coming into my IoT hub from my factory. I've got sensors set up everywhere. And when I process them, when I pull them into Stream Analytics and I process them, I have a sliding window over the last five minutes of data. And I find that, oh no, the average temperature of a sensor has gone up extremely high. And I need to act on that data because the temperature has gotten so high. I want to send a signal back down to my factory that says, hey, shut down all of these devices that are generating all this heat because something must be wrong. So how, I mean, is this the type of situation where where the IoT cloud would be a good fit? Because is the latency short enough? Uh, you know, can the signal be communicated down quickly enough before the factory catches fire? Um, you know, give me a description of... of of if that's a realistic scenario and what would happen? So uh, a lot of it depends on the requirements, you know, how, how fast and how much latency you really need. I mean, generally when, once the data hits the, hits an IOT hub and, and goes into stream analytics, I mean, that, that, that latency can be as low as, you know, a few hundred milliseconds um, for that data for, you know, for stream analytics to pick that up and take some action on it. Uh, but you also have to take into account the, the amount of time it took the data to get, you know, get over the internet to the cloud, uh, and and whatever whatever Azure service you're going to use to uh, to notify somebody. So, if you, for example, you can potentially if it's something that you you're comfortable with automating. So, I want to you know if the temperature goes a certain above a certain threshold, I want to turn around and send a command back down to that device for it to turn itself off automatically. You know that might be a realistic scenario for something like uh, Azure IoT. If you you know if 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 the 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 requirement threshold is such that 
um, uh, that you don't want to send a command back down to the device, well, then you have to look at things like uh, Azure mobile services or notification hubs where you're going to send a push notification to a human being uh, mobile device and then have them go shut the equipment down. So I think the kind of the electronic part of that can be done pretty quickly and realistically enough for these scenarios. A lot of it just depends on uh, the human factor as well. Now, you know, with that said, we also, particularly through uh, our new gateway SDK um, that we just announced, you can certainly do some of that processing on the edge such that if, you know, uh, you know, when milliseconds count, you can potentially do some of that processing at the gateway and then have the gateway turn around and send a signal down to the device telling it to shut itself off um, mm. for emergency. So we're, we're, that, that's one of the reasons that we developed this gateway SDK is, is for those type scenarios where I want to do processing locally on, uh, you know, on a gateway before that, that data goes up to uh, the cloud because there might be something that, that's just that time critical, you know, when milliseconds count. Ah. I see. Okay, interesting. So when when you talk about these these gateways, so is this like I've got a server that's just running on prem that is prepared to 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 do the gateway stuff? It it can be. We do have we do have customers that do uh, that do that scenario. So for for example, um, you know we have uh, a customers uh, a, a customer. And this is actually a public case study a customer called Ziosk that does. Um, they have the, they make the little tabletop things. And if you've ever been to a Chili's or a Olive Garden, the little tabletop Ziosk game thing where you can do your order and those kinds of things, you know, those things talk to Azure IoT and they do so through a server that's in the, the back of the store. Um, but in addition to that, there's also other options for gateways as well. There's certainly, depending on the, your requirements around how reliable and how, how hardened this gateway needs to be, you know, things like, um, you know, Minnow boards and Dragon boards and, and uh, Raspberry Pis, you know, they can be used for a gateway. We also have a number of partners, uh, Intel being one, you know, Dell being another, uh, Libelium is another example of one that are making uh, kind of what I like to call the industrialized gateways. So either, these are the things that can, that can handle the, the temperature and the stress and, you know, vibration and, and, you know, potentially dirty environments of a of like a shop floor, for example. Mm. Um, so we have, you know, we have partners that are making these hardware gateways. Um, that will be so uh, leveraging our gateway SDK. They are all on prem, right? Like they do keep these things on prem because they need to react to the type of situation that we described earlier, where that gets too hot and you need something to to be extremely low latency or. You need something that's re- that that will respond even in the event of a network failure. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So mo- all the gateways I've talked about so far are on-prem. We do have a flavor of gateway that runs in the cloud. Uh, it, it's really for a different purpose. So uh, generally, it's for the purpose of I have a device that's capable of talking to the internet, and I'm comfortable with putting it on the internet, but it speaks. It doesn't speak or can't speak one of the three protocols that IoT Hub speaks natively. Um, you know, say for example, it speaks CoAP, which is another another IoT protocol. You know, we we have an open source project out there we call the Cloud Protocol Gateway, where where we've really implemented kind of the the IoT Hub facing side of it, uh, and then we you know it's open source so people can plug in different protocols 
on the the device facing side of it. So it's a gateway that you can host in the cloud in like a, a web role or a worker role and talk to these devices that can talk to the cloud but can't talk to IoT Hub directly. But that's a much more rare scenario than than the on-prem what we call field gateway. Hmm. Let's talk more about some failures. So there are all kinds of failures we could discuss. Um, I guess let's start with like the discussion of like your Wi-Fi fails or your connection to the internet fails. Somehow you've got all of these events that are coming off of your devices. You don't want that data to be dropped on the floor. What will happen in that type of scenario? Does it get stored on the gateway or how does the system respond to that? Yeah. So today, so so today, there's a. The, I would say in a, in a couple of ways. There's. I, I mentioned earlier there are really two ways for devices to connect. One is our is our client SDKs. So we have uh, really, you know, these are SDKs that are meant to run on devices that talk directly to uh, IoT Hub. Uh, and then we have our, our our separate gateway SDK as well. So I'll address the the first scenario first. So our our client SDKs, they. Um, they do a little bit of local buffering, so they do um, meaning when you send a message to the cloud, uh, that's not actually a synchronous call. You're basically dropping a message in a queue, and then we have a background thread servicing that queue and sending that data up to the cloud. And it can it can survive kind of transient network failures, and you know you, you have resend logic that can resend that event in the event of a transient network failure. In the event of a full network failure, so I'm down for you know, quite some time, then in that case, uh, typically that's, some, that's something that the device developer is just going to have to deal with. So they're going to have to persist those um, messages. Assuming they want to keep them, they're going to have to persist those messages locally. And then when they detect that the network's back up, kind of resend them. That's not, not something our SDKs take care of automatically. It's something we're kind of left up to the device developer. Uh, on the gateway SDK side, it's a, it's a similar thing. The, 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 um, the, the sins themselves are going to get buffered, but um, the gateway is going to have to be smart enough to know if it loses network connectivity for quite some time, it's going to have to, to store the, that data locally. And that's really mm-hmm. kind of up to the up to the gateway developer. Hmm. So, you know, we've talked a bit about the ingestion layer and the stream analytics layer. Um, we didn't really talk about what happens if, a signal is detected through stream analytics or through some other process, and you want to send a message down from the cloud to your IoT factory, and you want to do something that you know communicates with those devices. So, what is the what is the standard operating procedure for sending a message from the cloud? to that network of devices and how does it make its way to a specific device okay so the for uh there's again there's kind of two scenarios there's the directly connected device and then there's the gateway connected device so uh, generally when something is detected on the back end uh so maybe through stream analytics or something like that we'll we'll take that message we'll dump it in a queue that's being serviced by uh, some some code or maybe either a, a logic a- Azure logic app or maybe an Azure function, uh, which is you know the the, the new capabilities we in, we that's in uh, preview now, and that will call an API on the backside of IoT Hub on the what we call the service 
side versus the device side uh, to say, hey, I want to send a message to this device. So internal to IoT Hub, that, that um, message will get dropped in a device-specific queue and then will get delivered to the device. Um, if the device is, is always connected, it'll get it pretty much immediately. If um, the device is offline, then it'll get it the next time it connects uh, and get that message and be able to take action on it. Uh, similarly, for the, the Gateway SDK, the Gateway SDK is actually uh, what we call composable. With uh, It's got kind of a, a module uh, architecture where you can plug and play, almost like a pipeline of these modules, uh, one of which would be a translation layer that says uh, that, that allows me to send a message to the gateway and say it's intended for this particular device via its device ID, and the gateway would turn around and route that message back to the correct device. But the, the gateway itself is going gonna, is gonna to get that message from the device queue and then uh, internally route it to the correct device. Hmm. So IoT covers a huge surface area, and the different domains of IoT have their own challenges, and I want to go through some of these domains with you so we can maybe touch on some of the unique challenges of, of these different IoT worlds, and maybe you can touch on other technologies that you need to build on the back end in order to service them. So let's start with the connected home. So the connected home is kind of this nation thing that's been nation for a really long time. What are the big challenges in IoT around that connected home experience? So, so most of the big challenges around connected home are the, the, the multitude of standards uh, and even within the standards, the multitude of interpretation of those standards to have these devices be able to talk to each other. Um, the, you know, the, to have your, your light bulb be able to talk to the light switch um, and those kinds of things. That, that's probably really the biggest challenge in the connected home. And some of that's technological. And some of that is, of course, business, right? Everyone, you know, everyone in business wants to own the, the user experience. Uh, everyone wants to be... Um, you know the 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 hub or the 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 arbitrator of all of that within the smart home, so it's it's kind of resulted in a, a little bit of a fractured market, um, for sure. And having those things talk to each other, there's there there are a number of attempts to fix that. Uh, you know, the all seen alliance and the all joined protocol is is one example of that 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 Microsoft participates in. Uh, there, there are probably others as well. The, I, I focus, I personally focus much more on the the industrial and our uh, corporate side of IoT than the consumer. Okay. But but well, even so, as, okay. a, so, as a as a as a consumer who does home automation, I've seen that myself. Oh, oh, cool, interesting. Yeah, I've 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 actually heard about that a lot. Like you know, your protocol, your light bulb doesn't have the right protocol to talk to your uh, to talk to your you know other smart home device. Um, but since you know, since you specialize in in the industrial aspects, what about agricultural technology? I've heard of these really powerful soil monitoring systems that allow farmers to track if they've given the right amount of pesticides to their different plants. And this sounds like a really complex problem. It sounds like it's in an environment where the connectivity is not great. Uh, since it's you know, I can imagine like a huge cornfield. So, what are the problems around agricultural Internet of Things? I would probably say there's a couple of them. One, the, the, you hit on the biggest one, which is connectivity. 
So, you know, trying to get connectivity across a giant cornfield and to all of these devices, um, you know, out in, that are typically not only are they separated from each other, but oftentimes they're out in the middle of nowhere. So trying, trying to get connectivity for, uh, for those things can be a challenge. You know, the other is also just trying to find devices that will survive in those types of, those types of environments as well. So, you know, out in a cornfield that, uh, or, or, you know, a wheat field or whatever that's being uh, irrigated uh, every day. So you got to have a, you know, a waterproof device, but, but that can also, um, you know, be able to connect uh, externally across the farm. And then, uh, you know, the, the other is power. So you've got to have, you know, that same device has to be pretty low powered as well. Because uh, no, you know, nobody wants to go around, you know, every couple of days and replace batteries in these things. Um, so it's, it's a pretty classic, you know, distributed, physically distributed environment issue around connectivity and power, uh, and then just the environment. You know, it's, it's dirty and you know, wet soil, and and the things themselves get wet, and they might get trampled by animals, and uh, you know, crawled over by bugs. So they have to be very, yeah, and, and- very robust. And with this type of situation, is there anything that Microsoft can do as the service provider, or is this more of a situation where you build the right backend systems and kind of wait for the hardware to catch up? It, generally, it's uh, it's mostly the, the latter, where we're we're really focused much more on the kind of the Azure side of IoT. I mean, we do make we do make a device operating system with Windows 10 IoT Core. But we really are relying on our hardware partners to provide a lot of this. Now, we, we do have, you know, a number of partnerships with kind of unique providers that solve some of these problems, like Sigfox, for example, is going to uh, – is working really hard on some of the connectivity things. Um, but it, it really is – we're reliant on our, our hardware partners to kind of help get that, you know, that last uh, 100 yards out into the cornfield, if you will. Hmm. So this conversation around IoT, it's been going on for a long time. And if I'm a big corporation like John Deere or Procter & Gamble, obviously I need to adopt IoT at some point. Like if I wait too long, I'm going to fall behind all the other people who are adopting it. But if I'm too early, then I'm going to aggress- aggressively invest in IoT technology that's not good enough. It's not going to catch up. Uh, soon enough to to meet my investment. So, how how are companies dealing with dealing with this problem? Because they must have been burned so many times over the years, where they're like, "Well, you know, we we made an investment in this thing that didn't work out because the IoT stuff wasn't as far along as the vendors were saying it was going to be." So, at what pace are the big companies, the Procter and Gambles and the John Deere's? How are they adopting the Internet of Things? So I would say, uh, like most things, that the there are the, the the big companies tend to tend to lag the smaller companies in terms of jumping in with both feet and and doing these innovative IoT things. Uh, but I would also say most large companies now are at least in the uh, the R and D state. They've re-entered if they if they've been trying to do it in the past. They've kind of aggressively re-entered the the R and D stage. Of IoT, so that that's really where most customers are. They're they're in kind of the POC and maybe small pilot stage of IoT, because not only is there technology to figure out, there's value prop as well. You know, what is the business value of doing this versus the cost? And and a lot of that is really just now kind of settling settling in. We're uh, 
Um, you know, we're, we're early on. I mean, specifically the, the, the group I'm in within Microsoft, uh, we call ourselves Global Black Belts, but uh, the, the former name that we had last year may be more fitting in that we used to call ourselves Incubation. So kind of incubating new businesses, uh, IoT being one of them. Um, and the idea there is we're, we're kind of helping those customers that want to lead the way uh, in doing this. So the, uh, the large companies, I would probably say at least uh, a third, um, maybe even as much as a half of the half of the IoT discussions I have today are with big companies. So you know the J and Js of the world and Bank of Americas and companies of that size, um, and they a lot of them are you know moving forward with IoT solutions today. Now, there I think the the way companies are are approaching it today is a little bit maybe a little bit smarter and a little bit more more. Um, appropriate than in the past in that they are very much insisting on uh, more kind of standardized and open standards type implementations than they have in the past. You know, there have been a lot of proprietary IoT vendors in the past that that have locked people in and, and they've, um, you know, they, they have trouble, trouble when they spend that much money and then that vendor goes away or or they have difficulties with that kind of stuff. So I would say a couple of things are really helping today. It's most of the IoT vendors, Microsoft included, uh, especially you know, kind of under our, our new leadership, are really em- embracing the open standards and open source uh, type implementations for IoT. I uh, know we certainly are, you know, far beyond any anything that we've done in the past. And even within Microsoft, the IoT group is often leading the way in terms of embracing open source and open standards. So I think that's helping some. The other thing that's helping a lot is cloud, honestly. So I, I can approach an IoT project with very little investment. I don't have to stand up a, a large server farm to ingest my IoT data. I go to Azure portal and I turn on IoT Hub. And if it doesn't work out, I, clo- I shut it down. I only pay for what I use. Same with Stream Analytics, and then similar with you know our our other competitors, our other cloud competitors as well. It's it's becoming increasingly easy for companies to kind of do do that um, do these experiments to see if it's going to work the way they want it to work without a big investment. We we like to use the term fail fast. So if I got a project that I an IoT project that I think is going to give really work well and it's going to give me a good return on my investment and I can do this project with relatively minimal effort and relatively minimal cost and if it doesn't work out I just I fail fast with with very little expense. Hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned that the open source this kind of a movement towards open standards or open source and it sounds like the lessons that were learned in the movement towards open source software are being translated to open source IoT, open source, I don't know about hardware, but at least the protocol standards. Basically, the lesson that it's very tricky to figure out what you want to open source and what you want to keep as your competitive advantage. Um, so it's a, it's a fascinating tension there. Um, but speaking of competitive advantage, I guess let's let's close off by talking a little bit about the the different IoT platforms. We have Google, Azure, Amazon, all competing in this space. Um, is the IoT space just as tightly competitive as the rest of the cloud areas, or is is there is there a company that is is leading the way? Are these companies differentiated? 
Give me give me some perspective on the competitive landscape of cloud IoT. Yeah, so I think um, I, I think it, it it definitely is competitive and, and getting more competitive every day, uh, particularly because IoT is such a hot buzzword. Everybody wants to be everybody wants to be an IoT provider, uh, and in some cases that means you know taking something existing and and branding it as IoT. Um, I mean, you, you know, even if you look at the the Microsoft platform, you know, Stream Analytics. Uh, really kind of uh, predated th- some of our IoT work. Uh, a lot of the other stuff, you know, Hadoop and and machine learning and those kinds of things also predated IoT. So we're we're putting those towards an IoT solution with IoT Hub really being the new component there. Uh, you know, Amazon's doing the same thing, right? They've got a bunch of their existing existing services. Uh, and they've added their their IoT a hub equivalent on the front and calling that an IoT solution. So I think. Um, I, I think you know the state of the cloud uh, today is that a lot of companies are you know a they're rebranding existing stuff to to make an IoT solution out of it and kind of making it all try to work together and then they're they're quickly trying to add on uh, really kind of fill holes they want to you know they want to fill holes where they don't have um, solutions today either whether that's via acquisition or via uh, you know internal uh, innovation. Um, so the the first stage was really rebrand what we have, and then everyone is running wide open to try to uh, have that complete solution. You know, and I think we're probably one of the we're probably one of the few that really has a, a, a pretty much end to end solution for IoT. You know, the, the the competitor that I personally run into the most uh, out in the wild is is Amazon, um, and you know they have a they have a pretty a pretty good solution as well. Um, you know, I think we, we kind of have different focuses. They focus more on uh, th- their existing ecosystem of, of AWS developers, of, of which there are a lot of them, whereas we focus on time to market and getting a solution to, to market quickly with, with what we call our pre-configured solutions and things like that. But, um, you know, in terms of cloud computing, it's everyone is, is taking their existing technologies and, and putting them towards IoT and then aggressively filling the gaps. So, you know, if you look at IBM, for example, you know, their, their IoT solution is primarily wrapped around their Watson artificial intelligence engine. Um, so they're they're very much into the the back end analytics processing, and they've got a lot, a lot of holes on the front end that they're working to fill. You know, if you look at someone like uh, ThingWorks, for example, you know, they are really good on the device side. I mean, their device management capabilities are really good. Um, and and really good on the device uh, connectivity side as well, but they're they're kind of lacking in the in the back end from a, a cloud perspective. So you know everyone's kind of aggressively looking to 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 fill their holes to be able to enable that end to end solution. You know today I would say you know Microsoft and Amazon are the the furthest along in that journey, um, primarily because of the the existing cloud assets that we have. Steve, thanks for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate you having me.